Thank you, Rob, for that reading. I think it's true that unless we go to Genesis as the foundation of understanding, really of all things, we find ourselves as a building without a foundation. Um, I, I haven't done this recently, but when my boys were younger, I would build towers. And if you build towers for them to knock down, you know that your tower can't be very tall unless you start pretty wide at the bottom. Genesis and the account of creation is the foundation, is the undergirder with which we can put a delicate understanding of gender and marriage on top and it can stand. As you understand our world today, if you read any sort of recent news, you find that not only gender, but everything precious to God and to an understanding of Him as Lord is under attack. We see the rights of the unborn being destroyed in our courts. We see the rights of people to choose how they will live being undermined. We see a hard agenda towards the elimination of gender as a separation in full-scale attack in our world today. And as we were considering uh, this text here in Mark 10, we felt it necessary to step aside a second and drill down a little bit deeper. What does it mean that Mark 10 verse 6 says, from the beginning, God created them, male and female? And how are we as a church going to represent that? Are we going to say this is us and create walls and, and keep everyone out? Or are we going to interact with what is God's truth and bring it to bear upon the world around us? Are we going to sit back and allow the world go its way? Or are we going to stand in its way with the truth of Scripture? And so this morning, we want to take a look at gender. What does it mean that God created them, male and female? We'll begin looking at two texts. Uh, first, this one here in Mark 10, but then also the, uh, the kind of parallel passage, the passage that Jesus actually quoted, um, which is Genesis 1, verse 27. And we'll look specifically at what, what, what are these texts saying in concrete forms. Secondarily, we want to look at our culture what is our culture saying about these things? How are they attempting to define gender? Uh, secondarily, and then thirdly, we want to take a look at the scriptures wide. What is the scriptures as a whole saying about a good understanding of gender? And then we want to think about how can we ourselves, A, confront our own misunderstandings, but then present an understanding of gender to the world that is acceptable. So first of all, we'll look at Mark 10, verse 6. And it simply states, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And if we rip this verse apart into kind of its individual statements, I think it gives us a clear path. First of all, 
from the beginning of creation. Again, if we're not rooted in Genesis, if we're not rooted in creation, in the beginning God, then we have no argument. We can never have a clear understanding of gender if we, first of all, don't have an understanding of creation. Because you see, creation, creation means intent. Creation means purpose. Creation means design for that intent and purpose. Creation points to God. The creator, the author, the all-powerful, the one who made all of creation, the one who made us for a specific purpose. But then we see that God made them. A distinct action of creation that only God can carry out. Humans can create, but we cannot make Okay? God can make something out of nothing. And humans can take those parts and create things from it, but we cannot, create, we cannot create things out of nothing as God did. The text also says that he made them in a specific form, that is, male and female. So clearly different. God made them intentionally different, but complementary. An understanding of male and female is that they are different, but they are complementary. The text in Genesis 1 adds another qualifier. God says, in his own image and in the image of God did he create them. And so humanity bears the image of God in ways that the animal, the plant, and the terrestrial creation does not. This image, as we'll see later, is, is born not in either gender alone, but in the uniting of the genders. In the togetherness of the genders do we see the full image of God. And neither can claim the full image of God without the other. And we'll dive into some of that a bit deeper later. What about our culture? What do we see in our culture in relationship to gender? And I think the one word that we hear the most is equality. And by equality, they mean sameness. No difference in purpose, no difference in function, no difference in capability, no difference in role. Sameness. But we also see a blurring of gender and identity. Excuse me, uh, in, in sex and identity. Okay? So, the one is a biological labor. The other is gender that is now seen as an identity. And so the workings out of who I am, there is my physical reality, but then there is my identity. And the fundamental difference that we find is that humanity today wants to say that I get to choose my own identity. 
I've found on um, a number of forums some interesting commentary. One person said, one can choose a different gender than what their biological body is born with. So there's a separation of what is biological and what is identity. And as we see our world talking about gender, this is where that confusion happens. It's about identity. And that's the language that we hear people using. And you'll hear these sorts of stories. By the age of four, I knew that while I was born with one gender, I knew that my identity was really another gender. Now, we must at least acknowledge that those feelings and those understandings are true. We do ourselves a great disservice when we tell people that that can't be so, that they're making these things up. Because in the brokenness of humanity, things are crooked. Things are broken. If you remember from last Sunday, the, or, or from the last sermon on divorce, the effects of divorce on our society are massive, and this is one of those effects, where people grow up with an unclear understanding of gender and of their own identity, and they're forced to follow their own way, and they're confused. But our world has said that now that these can be separate, even in the church, we have this debate, and while not necessarily on the fluidity of gender, that is that gender can be changed according to one's self-identity, but we have two primary positions that are expressed, and one is what we call complementarian, and one that is called egalitarian. Well, the egalitarian position states that genders, other than biological differences, are spiritually the same with the same distribution of gifts, with the same roles, and with the same responsibilities. So egalitarianism agrees that there is a biological difference, but that as we function as human beings in the world, other than those differences, humanity is the same. The complementarian position states that we are different, innately different but complementary. That there is something that is specifically male, and there is something that is specifically female, but that together, in complement, they represent the image of God. Let's look at a little bit of uh, other scriptures or other understandings from scripture um, to expand this further. As we've stated, our understanding of gender is rooted in our understanding of origin. And we've mentioned this numerous times, but unless we understand Genesis 1, we cannot properly understand gender. Uh, Shandon mentioned a, a piece of art, and this is a bit of an aside. Creation means intent. Intent means purpose. I think what we find so confusing about much modern art is that it is created without intent and without purpose. If art can be created by the random splattering of things, then it ceases to have intent. It ceases to have purpose. 
Intent or creation means purpose. Intent to do something is to create for purpose. In everything we do, our intent forces us to act in ways that create or work out that purpose. And that purpose, whether we're building things, whether we're creating art, whether we're singing music, whether we're doing family life, everything we do is guided by some purpose or some intent. And so one can create food, one can run a business, and one can really do anything with a purpose or with an intent. But without that underneath it, then there really is no concrete understanding of what we're doing. This understanding of creation and the fact that we are given a purpose by God undermines our culture's understanding of self-discovery. So this idea of self-discovery is something that our world desires very much. I need to find out who I am. I need to find out what, I, what I'm supposed to do. I need to find out all about myself. And the, the single most important virtue is to be true to yourself. To be true to yourself. To find out where your heart beats and how, how your heart is guiding you. And to be true to yourself is the most important virtue in much of our world. As Christians, we're less after self-discovery than we are after purpose discovery. Our question shouldn't be as, what do I want from life? What do I want to find in myself? Our, our question is, first and foremost, what purpose does God have for me? And this, this purpose cannot be found in merely our inclinations and our desires. We can't rule out our inclinations and desires. We cannot deny them, but they are not the sole, ultimate guiding focus of our discovery. Uh, many of you are familiar with a disk profile that kind of aligns your personality traits. And these are important to helping you chart a purpose, okay? But they are not the ultimate understanding. I know that as a high I, you don't want me to be in charge of delivering a finished good. It's not who I'm, nat it's not what I naturally am, okay? But I actually find myself in my vocation as a project manager. What does a project manager do? He delivers a project, okay? So I actually have to fight against my inclinations to do where I'm at and what I'm doing. So while a disk profile is helpful, it's not the ultimate. The determining factor in us finding our purpose always comes under the acknowledgement of God's creational purpose. And so clearly here in Genesis, in the story of creation, we see one primary purpose, and that was humanity was to be the image bearer of God himself. It's a sense God says to heaven, let us make man in our image. Let us make an image bearer of God. Now, I could have, I'm not, I'm not an art person, you never want me to draw anything, okay? But there are people that are very talented at this, and they could come here, and I could stand here, and they could be painting an image of me. Now, that image is going to represent certain parts of me. That image is going to show you physical features. It may show you hair color. It may show you 
any various things. But is that image me? Does it represent the whole of me? And it doesn't. It merely represents some physical attributes. Now, you may gain some window in my soul if the artist is quite talented and they can portray features that indicate emotion. But it's still a very minor part of me and it only shows one dimension. So we as image bearers of God, are we as image bearers the full orb of God? Does we as image bearers of him show fully God? Clearly we don't. So the question then becomes, what part of the image of God are we created to represent? If we're an image bearer of God, which part of his image are we representing? Now, you can imagine that this is um, a far deeper thinking than I'm capable of, so I'm indebted to numerous people. Uh, One person, uh, Phyllis Bird, makes the case, makes a great case from Genesis that the primary image of God represented in humanity is relational. That humanity is created to show the relational aspects of God. And she says, the image of God is relational and that both genders are required for God's full representation to be made in the human race. In other words, humanity, by virtue of its two-gender creation, is formed to show the relational qualities of God. We have other scriptures that then bear that out. In Ephesians, marriage is referred to as an image of Christ and his church. Somehow the relational image of marriage is an image of how God is. He's relational in his communication with man and with his church. John 15 shows Jesus relating to his father or to his followers or his disciples as friends. We see Jesus in his relationship with his disciples is not merely a, a teacher to student, but he's very relational. John 17 then develops that further and he indicates that within the Trinity there is a relational oneness that is desirable in the church. So Paul said, Jesus says that they would be one as we are one. Meaning that the church, the followers of God, would be one as the Trinity is one. And that oneness is a relational oneness. So, I, I think, if I'm not going to say this is the only image that we bear, but I think it is a primary one. It's one of relationship. The relational aspects of God are displayed in his creation of humanity as man and woman with the primary intent that they would enter relationship with each other and that by that relationship, the image of God would be reflected. N.T. Wright says, it's quite clear the bond of husband and wife creates not merely a partnership or working agreement but a new entity, a new human being. And as far as Jesus is concerned, that's what Genesis says about marriage. That's what God says. 
So there's something in the leaving of father and mother, the leaving of my own personal identity and accepting a unified identity that the image of God is fully born. Now, we as humans have a way of messing some of these things up, um, and, and we can take this sort of replacement of persons a bit far, and we often have these conversations about priority. Is male or female prioritized? That can end up in patriarchy or other sorts of errors. But Galatians 3 is quite clear. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Spiritually, before God, there is no priority. Okay? But in rejecting priority, we do not declare sameness or universal equality. In fact, we affirm inequality. But inequality is not a bad thing. R.P. Stevens says, inequality is not the necessary consequence of differentiation. So because things are different doesn't mean that they're ultimately unequal. In each of the analogies, there is a person or people with a priority. Jesus has priority in relation to his church. Salvation comes first to the Jews. The Father has priority with the Son. So we have three biblical analogies of a male-female unity in which differentiation and priority contribute to unity rather than prevent it. And I'm, I realize I'm, I'm mixing with my words. Uh, but, but when I'm saying earlier in priority, I'm saying that one is preferred or one is better. Um, I think in, in this text he's referring to, as we see in, in Scripture, the Father has a authority over the Son. Jesus has authority over the church. There is a headship order that exists. But it's not a better than sort of priority. C.S. Lewis says, I have the highest regard for the opposite sex. But there is no equality anywhere. In the great deep dance of heaven, there is no equality. We are not like stones laid side by side or one on top of the other, but stones ordered in an archway with each of us interlocking with him, the center. We are all equally at the center and none are there by being equals. And so the image we should have is that each gender is necessary and has its place and has its form that contributes to an understanding of the whole but we should not claim equality. Our understanding of gender should be as we see it in God's eyes, and it must be accepted as he states it, not as we perceive it. What we see in our world is an attempt to perceive, an attempt to create our own understanding of gender. The biggest push I think we see currently is in transgender rights, and that is that gender is fluid. Uh, Rosario Butterfield says of that, you simply cannot have a concept of transgender rights without a complete redefinition of personhood. You cannot have fluid gender without a redefinition of personhood. What we're saying earlier is that we are different 
and that we are, as God, created to be parts of a whole. Our world wants to say we're the same and that we can be whatever we want to be. And in fact, by doing so, they destroy the reality of gender. When we, when our world denies God's order, we are in fact denying that we are image bearers. When we deny the order that God has created, we are in fact denying that we are created as image bearers. In our understandings of gender, we appeal to God and the scriptures to find our guidance. And when we deny that, as our world has done, we are in a sense denying God himself. So how does this affect how we live? I think we see a wide spectrum of Christians relating to culture in the areas of gender. From the harsh statements that we see in bumper stickers, in organizations, to openness and acceptance. We have the wide spectrum of response. I think we would do well to be charitable. We'd be well to have an understanding of sin that isn't limited to a particular action. You see, sin, sin is not an action. Sin is a nature. Sin is a result of us claiming to ourselves the right of self-governance. And that sin will be borne out in our actions. Okay, So whether that action is greed, whether that action is rejection of gender in homosexuality or in transgender, whether it is an unordered marriage, those particular sins are not what condemn us. What condemns us is a rejection of God as creator. The separation comes when we do not recognize God as creator and Lord, and that is borne out in our actions. Thus then is the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel which promises to each of us that we can be set to right. That we who were born in objection to God, we who were born wanting to self-govern, wanting to, to decide our own way, wanting to live out of our own inclinations and desires, can be rescued. Not merely from the action of sin. Because when we are saved, we clearly turn from sin. But it saves us from the demand of self-governance. We as a church have an opportunity. And it's twofold. One, we can develop within ourselves an understanding of gender that is God-honoring, that will bear out in our marriage relationships, 
and in our platonic relationships. Understanding how God has created us and living out of that. We also have a witness to the world around us. And we have the responsibility to declare to them their undoing. We have a responsibility to declare to them the good news of the gospel that will, re- that will rescue them from their disorderliness. And we can present to them an understanding of gender that is as God has created it. May God give us his grace and his wisdom as we interact in these areas. As we see our world moving more and more towards those sorts of things, we cannot remain silent. We cannot remain hidden. We cannot choose to not risk. The world needs God's understanding of gender. Let's pray. Father, in your goodness, in your powerfulness, you have created us. Created us as image bearers, created us as male and female. Father, we recognize that even we have a disordered understanding of gender. Even we, in our, in our innate desire for self-pleasure, for self-discovery, have misused gender. Father, would you rescue us from that? And Father, as we exist in a world that is rapidly throwing off any understanding of gender that's identifiable as sourced from you. Father, give us wisdom as we interact with people. Give us charity and grace and goodness. Father, help us not to reject people because of their sin, but because of their sin to call them to the Savior. Help us not be the ones who judge, but to be the ones who point to you as the judge. Father, we feel inadequate in these things. We pray that your truth and wisdom would undergird us. Guide us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's have a song.